as we return to the Gospel of Mark, a way to frame sort of what we're looking at this morning, let me make the following observation. We are simultaneously, all of us here right now, simultaneously living and dying. We breathe. Oxygen comes into our lungs. Blood flows through our veins. Our bodies are growing. Our minds are expanding. We are alive. And yet, we are dying. Our bodies, even as we sit here, are also breaking down physically and chemically. Our breathing grows more labored. The flow of our blood encounters more obstacles as we continue to live. Sometimes it even gets stuck. Our minds are aging, inadvertently skipping more and more, (laughs) gradually misplacing and forgetting things. We are dying even as we are living. The question in the midst of that reality is, what are we living for? Are we living for and are we dying to the right things? In many ways, this is the question, I think, that frames the journey of Lent, and in particular, our passage this morning. In just a moment, one of our elders, Chersty, will come up and read to us from the Gospel of Mark, and when she does, to be honest, at first glance, when you follow along as she's reading this morning, it's going to look like a hodgepodge, a hodgepodge of Jesus' teaching about different topics. I mean, it's, it's quite the laundry list, seemingly. The nature of success, the issue of competition, the place of children, the hazards of stumbling, the benefits of cutting off temptation, and the flavor of salt. However, if we listen carefully, we'll quickly realize Jesus isn't just throwing out a bunch of tangential topics for us to consider. At the heart of his teaching, Jesus is speaking to us about matters of life and death. Are we living for and dying to the right things? That's the question Jesus provokes us to answer as we listen to the gospel today. Well, good morning. If you haven't already, you can turn to your Pew Bible, page 706, Mark 9, 30 through 50. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us 
is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed that with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the, read, the, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No worries. Thanks, cheers, Dave. So this is Jesus' final sweep through Galilee. His is no longer a public ministry. We'll notice the large crowds no longer gather to listen to Jesus. Most have seen enough and moved on. Others, as we've witnessed, have outright rejected him. And this is the start of a growing trend. Eventually, in about six months' time, Jesus will head south to Jerusalem where he will be momentarily heralded, only to be eventually handed over, abandoned, and ultimately crucified. As Jesus speaks of these pending realities for the second time, the second time he tells his followers yet again of his coming death and resurrection, the disciples, once again, do not understand. Or do they? Based on what Mark shares with us, the disciples seemingly understand enough to be afraid to ask Jesus any questions. So is it they don't know what Jesus is talking about? Or they don't want to know what Jesus is talking about? In the transition from Galilee to Capernaum, you heard as Charity read that the disciples, instead of asking for an explanation from Jesus, are trying on their own to clear up an entirely different matter. According to Jesus, they're arguing again. Mark tells us the disciples weren't wrestling with the question of why must the Messiah suffer and die. Instead, they're wrestling with the question of who is the greatest among us? Who is the greatest among us? Is it me? Yeah, come on, you know it's me, right? It's not you, it's me. I'm the greatest, right? You think you're the greatest? Come on, seriously. Who's the greatest among us? Do these guys ever get it? As followers of Jesus, do we? I mean, these guys are a lot like us. They understood, they believed Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And out of that belief, the disciples were following Jesus, staying closely connected to him as they tried to learn from him, looking to gain authority and power from being in relationship with Jesus. And in one sense, this is good and right. This is why we follow Jesus, 
to be guided by him, to represent him not out of our own might and muscle, but his. What they were continuing to miss, or maybe purposefully even overlook, is where this is all headed. Where we have to get to, to be where we're supposed to be. To know where Jesus is going is simultaneously to hear the call to follow him. And Jesus keeps telling them and us the road he travels on is marked with suffering and death. But the disciples haven't worked out the implications of following Jesus with their lives. The disciples were expecting to sit on thrones. They never dreamed of hanging on crosses in order to get there. With the disciples, like them, we haven't grasped the cross either. We want Jesus to save us, but we don't want, we don't choose to think about what we might have to give up in order to be saved, to live out of the new life that Jesus offers us. If we are lost, if we are dead apart from Jesus, then we can't go on living the same way once we find and follow Jesus. If it's new life, everything changes. Through his sacrifice, Jesus is calling us to take a serious look at the sacrifices we are making. To be honest with ourselves about who and what we are living for. In taking up our cross with him, Jesus is calling us to put to death some deeply held convictions about what our lives are supposed to be about. So what needs to change? What needs to die? This morning in this passage, in this teaching that Jesus gives us in Mark, there are three things that Jesus says we need to die to. We need to die to success. We need to die to insecurity. And we need to die to sin. Success, insecurity, and sin. We're called in following Jesus to die to success. The disciples, like us, are preoccupied with success. Who is the greatest? Let's take a vote. Who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? We want to be successful. We want to be successful. We play to win. We aim for the top to be the best. We all desire to be noticed. Everybody wants to be somebody rather than nobody. But Jesus redefines for the disciples and for us our measure of success. Jesus says it's not about who comes in first. It's about who's willing to be last. It's not about, who's, about being served by many. It's about being a servant of all. Thousands of years later, these ancient words are still radical, counterintuitive thinking. I mean, come on, sitting here this morning, deep down, we still believe this is what we teach our children. This is how we operate our businesses. This is how we organize our lives. Still today, 2,000 years later, deep down, we still believe success and winning are about coming out on top not finding ourselves at the bottom. Success and winning is about being the best, the greatest of all time, the world record holder. Not the least, the unknown player, the one who barely qualifies. We all want to get the gold, the silver, 
or at least the bronze, not the certificate for playing. <laughs> Jesus equates success with helping others. But the disciples are too busy helping themselves. They're silent. Did you notice that? They're silent when Jesus questions them. Do you remember last week? Same thing. Jesus questions them, and they're silent. They're silent again because they know their argument about who is the greatest among them is self-serving rather than serving others. They're so focused on their own security. They're so focused on their own futures. They're trying to work out how to best place themselves so they can milk their relationship with Jesus into better positions of power and glory. If you've been with us the last two Wednesdays as we've had these Lenten services, time of worship and this time, the time of considering developing a conversational relationship with God. And again, you're invited. We're still doing that. We've recorded them. But one of the places we've started in these last two, two weeks has not been where I think many people wanted to, which is in, okay, here are the steps to hearing God. But instead, sort of debunking a lot of faulty thinking that we have about hearing God. Stuff that's not biblical, that's sort of, our own, of our own making. And one of the primary things that we've been wrestling with is that hearing for, from God is not a formula for getting guidance out of God. Most people who, even, who hear God or who desire to hear God, they want to hear God solely as a device for securing their own safety and comfort. I want to know what God's will is for my life. I want God to tell me what's going on in my life. I want God to answer me about my stuff. But beloved, hearing from God is not a formula for getting guidance out of God on matters that may concern us. That's a mechanical relationship with God. And we don't have a mechanical relationship with God. God doesn't treat us like puppets or robots. He doesn't pull our strings. And in the same way, we don't have a mechanical relationship with God that we don't push buttons, say the right words, and, G and God goes, da-ding, here you go. We don't have a mechanical relationship with God. God says we have a personal relationship. God wants to engage us in a relationship where... He already knows us, but he wants us to know him. And he wants to engage us in a personal relationship so that in relating to us and in us relating to him, we better relate to each other. Dallas Willard, whose book has kind of been the centerpiece beyond the Bible, the Bible is the foundation, but Dallas Willard is a lens for thinking about hearing God, has this quote that speaks to what I'm talking about. He says, an extreme preoccupation for knowing God's will for me may only indicate Contrary to what is often thought, that I'm overly concerned with myself, not a Christ-like interest in the well-being of others or in the glory of God. Beloved, when Jesus calls us to die to success, he's calling us to die to our sense of self-importance. Jesus says that our sense of self-worth is reflected by our compassion, our hospitality towards others. How we value others is the most honest expression of how we perceive we are valued. If we worship the biggest, the best, and the brightest, we are declaring that this is what we believe our worth is measured by. This is how we understand our Father's view of us. And again, let's be honest, for most of us, we want the photo op, we want to be seen with the CEO, with the most valuable player. 
with the most successful, famous people. When we get our picture taken with the Academy Award winner, the MVP, the CEO, name your celebrity, we immediately post that on Facebook. Get a load of who I'm with. And yet, interestingly, Jesus again and again and again in the scripture says, if you want to find me, you'll find me anywhere. But if you really want to find where I spend the heart of my time, you won't find me amongst the CEOs, the most valuable players, the Academy Award winners, which is not to say that Jesus isn't there. You'll find me amongst the least of these. And yet, think about this. Where we want to have our picture taken with the biggest, the best, and the brightest— We are the opposite. We don't want someone to inadvertently catch our picture when we're hanging with the drug addict, the prostitute, the homeless person. Because if that picture gets on Facebook, which we won't post, by the way, what will people think about the company we keep? What will people think about the associations we make? So even in that, again, points to how we look at success, how we see ourselves. But, and again, if we worship the biggest, the best, and the brightest, we're declaring that this is what we believe our worth is measured by. This is how we understand our Father's view of us. And Jesus says, no. Your value and your worth is in your hospitality. It's in your compassion towards others because that's what God gives to you. And to drive this point home for the disciples, if you heard Charity read it, he picks up a child. Remember, they're in Capernaum. So I want to push you a little bit. If they're back in Capernaum, they're probably in Peter's house because that's where they hung out. So they're in Peter's house and Peter picks up a ch- Jesus picks up a child, probably one of Peter's family. And he puts a child in front of the disciples to drive this home. Now, he doesn't pick up a child. You, we may read this a little bit differently. He doesn't pick up a child because of the child's innocence. So the disciples all go, ooh, and ah, Oh, how pretty, how cute, how precious. Jesus picks up a child and puts them in front of the disciples because back then, children weren't romanticized like they are today. Jesus places a child in front of his disciples because of the child's lack of rank and stature in the world that they're a part of. Children were totally helpless. They still are. Early on, they're totally helpless. They're completely vulnerable, unlearned, absolutely dependent. They consume more than they give. And because of that, back in the time of Jesus, children were deemed as insignificant, less important than women and slaves. And yet Jesus puts a child right in front of the disciples, an object lesson to say to them as they look at this child, That when we're shaped by the cross, we look at the least person of all and find our greatness not in our own sense of importance. We find our greatness in the importance we give to others. And beloved, don't miss this. In the shock, and for now you understand the shock of picking up a child and holding a child before the disciples, there is a tremendous invitation for us. Because if you can picture this scene as this child, the lowest and most insignificant of all types of persons, is held and embraced by Jesus, so Jesus is saying we as his disciples can enter into the same kind of intimacy and tenderness with God our Father. If we welcome such as this, a little child. If we look after such as this, a little child. If we look at the least of people among us and around us, we welcome Jesus, but we also embrace the one who sent him. And it goes without saying, Jesus doesn't have to put it together for us, but when we allow ourselves to die to our understanding of success, 
we stop worrying about our status. Because we recognize our greatness rests not in our own sense of self-importance, not in our own measure of success. Our greatness lies in the weight of the sacrifice of the one who served us, who declares us important enough to give away his life for ours on the cross, who declares us important enough to give his life away for ours on the cross, even when we are acting like children, arguing about whether we are the greatest. If you heard Charity continue on, unfortunately, the disciples, particularly John, continue to miss the point. John at this point pipes up, um, excuse me, um, Jesus, um, teacher, this is great and all, I love what you're saying, by the way. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, I read that sarcastic. But really, on the face of it, John's concern comes across as being fairly sincere. But I read it as sarcastic because I think beneath the surface of his comment is an admission of something far more sinister than the perceived threat he is bringing to Jesus' attention. It's interesting, isn't it, that John doesn't say, "Uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following you. Notice what John says. Uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. If you got your Bible open, just go a couple of verses back from where we started reading today. Not too long ago, the disciples unsuccessfully tried to cast a demon out of a boy. They failed. We saw this last week because they tried to do it on their own without relying on God through prayer. And now... They've stumbled across a guy who was successful doing what they failed to accomplish earlier. This man, this outsider's success, come on, is a serious blow to John and the rest of the disciples, their identity as Jesus' followers, his inner circle. And they clearly haven't learned the lesson Jesus is trying to teach them here. They're still worried about who's the greatest. Who belongs and who doesn't? Who's in and who's out? And so naturally, they tell Jesus they've rejected this rival. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of love as the distinguishing mark of those who follow him. Love is the distinguishing mark of those who follow Jesus. But the disciples throughout Mark so far, can we all agree on this, have not been distinguished by their love. They are marked more by their fear. Their rejection of this outsider isn't primarily out of their concern for Jesus. Their rejection is rooted in the way of the world. It comes out of their own insecurity. And this leads to the next observation of what we're called to die to in following Jesus. We're called to die to, our, to success, our understanding of success. We're called to die to our sense of self-importance. But we're also called to die to our insecurity. We're called to die to our lack of self-confidence. We're no different than the disciples, beloved. Like them, we tend to be driven by our insecurities, aren't we? Our self-confidence comes more from our fear than it comes from faith. We feel better about our accomplishments. We find our security in our achievements at the expense of other people. We elevate ourselves by putting others down. 
Myself included, we all have a knack. It, I don't know what it, it just seems like. To, it just comes naturally. We all have a knack for expressing reservations, for stating concerns, or just letting you know about other groups who are doing things a little differently than we are. You know, people who aren't following the protocol, people who don't have an ID, a license, the right endorsements, paid their dues, have been accepted into membership, or met the benchmark that we've set for acceptability. It's very easy, just in our natural conversation, very innocently, seemingly, to bring up our concerns about other people. Haven't you heard? Didn't you know? Am I the only one who notices? Everyone thinks this is unacceptable. Everyone. Everyone thinks this is unacceptable. Don't we all agree about this? Don't we all agree this is wrong? We can dress it up and we can make it sound, our concerns sound good and noble. But our real concern isn't for that group. It isn't for that person. It's for ourselves. The threat to our identity, to the stability of our own position Beloved, if you really, if we step back and really tune into what Jesus is saying here, we're bound to be more than a little shook up, all of us, because Jesus seems to be declaring, if you're looking at it with me, he seems to be declaring that God is bigger than the church. Say, what? God is bigger than the church? Jesus seems to be saying that what defines belonging to him is not so much that we're Lutheran, not so much that we're members of grace, members of any group, Jesus says that what defines belonging to him, what matters is if a person is acting in his name. The phrase is repeated over and over again in the passage. In my name, to receive a child in the name of Jesus, to cast out oppressive powers in the name of Jesus. What matters for eternal life is doing things in Jesus' name. Maybe what Jesus is telling us here is not that God is bigger than the church, but rather God's view and definition of what the church is, is bigger then we make it. Now, bearing the name of Christ, just to clear this up for everybody, doesn't mean name-dropping Jesus. Adding the name of Jesus to anything and everything we do. What Jesus says when he says, in, the name, in my name, bearing the name of Jesus means acting the way Jesus would act. Bearing the name of Jesus means our sense of security in whatever we do comes not from our reputation, but from his. Our confidence in whatever we seek to accomplish is not based on ourselves, our work, but on him, his work for us. And this is important for us to hear because it's not just, just so this isn't one-sided, it's not just that we sell other people's work short for the kingdom. We also have a tendency to lessen the impact of our own contribution to the kingdom. And yet, I hope you heard it, Jesus proclaims even seemingly the smallest of tasks offering a cup of water to someone in his name as not going unvalued by his father. Beloved, hear the invitation in that, in that many of us not, not just, again, lessen the contribution of others, but lessen our own contribution, cut our, sell ourselves short. Our self-confidence doesn't just cause us to go on the attack, but it also causes, causes us to hold back ourselves. And yet, Jesus says even a cup of cold water to someone in his name does not go unvalued by his Father. 
Hear the invitation in this. The kindness of a friendly smile. The willingness to sit with someone in the dark. The generosity of a home-cooked meal or a warm bed to sleep in. Making time to listen to the soul of another person. These are of no less value. They can have just as much of a kingdom impact as preaching a sermon or casting out demons. Any work we do in the name of Jesus, serving others out of obedient love for Jesus is like placing a sign in the world, a light, a beacon that communicates the grace of Christ is real and that hope in Jesus is not in vain. Now, Jesus addresses, he does, he addresses the reality that there are other people who do not work in his name. People whose behavior creates a stumbling block for those who desire to follow him. His warning against belittling, critiquing, and causing division is a caution against making it harder for anyone to believe, to live, and to hope in God. And we need to be careful that we don't just hear Jesus as giving this warning to those within the community of faith. He's cautioning anyone, inside or outside the community, whoever puts up a stumbling block. Inside or outside the community, anyone who lives to create chaos, anyone who seeks to be an obstruction in the lives of those who are trying to follow Jesus by serving others. Jesus says such people risk a terrible end. They risk falling victim to the very trouble they seek to cause. I mean, and if you were paying attention, some of you, I saw your eyebrows go up. Jesus uses very over-the-top language here. I mean, we've got people being drowned, body parts being cut off, other people being thrown into hell. This is not the kind of talk that we expect from Jesus. And frankly, this is not the kind of talk we like to hear from Jesus. Why does Jesus speak like this? Because he's trying to impress upon the disciples, us, the seriousness of it all. And this leads to our third observation from this passage about the way of discipleship. We die to our sense of success. We die to success, our sense of self-importance when we follow Jesus. We die to our insecurity, our lack of self-confidence when we follow Jesus. And we also, when we follow Jesus, die to sin. And more specifically, we die to our self-justification. We die to our self-rationalization. We die to making excuses for the brokenness and chaos in our lives. I mean, because again, let's be honest. Let's tell the truth in church on Sunday. It's easier for us to make the case for our own greatness by pointing out the weaknesses of other people. We tend to avoid facing our own weakness and shortcomings by deflecting towards the faults and screw-ups of other people. We especially do this when we feel threatened by people. We paint the worst possible picture of them to cast ourselves in a better light. We often take the role of victim, which lets, which lets us excuse our own faults and even allows us to justify our wrongdoing. How can it be our fault? How can we be blamed? They caused me to stumble. They made me do it. And at least I'm not in as bad shape. At least I'm not as messed up as they are. But pay attention. Jesus' word here is it's not the faith of other people we need to be worried about. And, and we all need to hear this because, again, we all have this, this inclination 
to point out the log in each other's eyes. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't have to worry about the faith of other people. Rather than rail against those who sin against us, Jesus says, be sure there's no sin within you. Don't worry about them. Let's focus on ourselves. Be aware, Jesus says. Be attentive. Be disciplined with our eyes, with our hands and our feet. It's better, Jesus says, to pluck out your eyes, to cut off our hands and our feet, than to let them lead us astray. Now, of course, for any of us who are worried, Jesus didn't mean for us to literally go out and cut off our limbs. I don't know about you, but if Jesus meant that, I would have been run out of hands and feet a long time ago. <laughs> Besides, we know from other places that Jesus teaches that it's not our hands or our eyes or our feet that cause us to sin, that cause us to stumble. It's what's inside our hearts, our minds, our wills that cause us to stumble. But what Jesus is saying is that it doesn't just cause us to stumble. Our behaviors and our actions affect others. The context for what Jesus is saying here is about things that harm the life of the community. Things that are not welcoming. Things that are not serving others. And many of us need to hear this because some of us are so angry. We're so fixated on, again, what the, the log in our brother's eye that, yes, we fail to see the splinter in our own mind, but it's more than that. We fail to see that that splinter doesn't just impact us. It has a ripple effect through the community. That our chaos, our obstructionism, our baggage isn't something we carry alone. It impacts others. And some of us don't realize this, and some of us, if I can be blunt, don't care. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. Jesus says it would be better for us to take a long walk off a short pier than to cause others to stumble in the exercise of their faith. Going swimming in concrete shoes, Jesus says, is better than causing harm to another in their service to others. Jesus', Jesus is hyperbole, his language here is intended to prick our minds. He's trying to tug our hearts. He's trying to leave a mark on our souls so that we don't forget to repeatedly, repeatedly bring our weaknesses to Jesus. To bring our weaknesses to Jesus. Because if we don't bring our weaknesses to Jesus, then we won't find our success in his greatness. Then we won't find our confidence in his name. We'll go back to the first two problems that we've had. Our success will be defined elsewhere. Our confidence will come elsewhere. Jesus closes this out by saying, everyone will be salted with fire. And Jesus has just been talking about hell and heat, and so it's like everyone will be salted with fire. You might go, uh, that doesn't sound good. But Jesus is making a switch here. He's talked about heat, and he changes talking about the heat by saying everyone will be salted with fire. And if we don't get what Jesus is saying here, if we struggle to understand his meaning, let me tell you that there's one place in the Bible where salt and fire come together. And when you know it, it's where we were this past summer, Leviticus. It's when one offers a sacrifice. In the second chapter of Leviticus, there's this talk of seasoning all of your grain offering with salt. It says, do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. In other words, salted with fire is sacrificial language. What Jesus is saying here is following him is like making your life a burnt offering. A burnt offering to God. Did you know that originally in the history of the church, the sacrament of baptism involved putting salt on the lips of the person who was being baptized. 
Originally in the history of the church, the sacrament of baptism involved putting salt on the lips of the person who was being baptized. This was done so that they would always have a hunger, a taste for the word of the Lord. Jesus is declaring here that offering our lives is to be total and complete. Give everything of who you are. Always allow yourself to have a hunger for the word, the way of Jesus. If we offer the whole of who we are, Jesus says, we will be made whole in our service to others for the Lord. And then Jesus shifts and uses the metaphor of salt in a different way. Salt is also a symbol of friendship and hospitality, a custom that's still observed in Arab countries today. And that's the symbolism Jesus is referring to when Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. In other words, Jesus is saying, preserve that quality, that flavor that makes you a blessing to one another. Preserve that quality, that flavor that makes you a blessing to one another. Now, I'm not much of a cook. My wife is an exceptional cook. I dabble, which makes me dangerous. I dabble sometimes when I cook, but I've, been around, I've done enough cooking that I've heard the expression, salt to taste. We've all heard that expression before, salt to taste. Well, if you're like me, it's a simple instruction, but have you ever wondered what it means? I mean, what does it really mean? I mean, as an ingredient in dishes, salt plays two very important roles. First, salt reduces bitter flavors. Second, because it reduces bitterness, salt, adding salt, allows the aromas and tastes of the other ingredients in your dish to shine through. So when we're told salt to taste, we're actually not looking for salty flavor. What we're trying to do is get rid of the bitterness and make the rest of the flavors pop. Jesus, in his exhortation for us to stay salty, my friends. Good, you got that, okay. Jesus, in his exhortation to stay salty, <laughs> is an appeal for us to bring the distinctive taste of our community into the world. When we are salty, we preserve community through our humble service to each other in the name of Jesus. In serving others, we, like salt, remove the bitterness that comes from fighting and quarreling. And instead, we purify our relationships, letting the flavors of peace, love, hope, and the joy of being together in Christ come through. Beloved, tasteful discipleship is flavored with the salt of sacrifice. To follow Jesus in the way of the cross, we must surrender rather than preserve our previous definitions of how we measure success and where we find our security. Our greatness in the kingdom of God is not contingent upon what we do better than other people. Greatness in the name of Jesus through Christ is seen in different places in different ways. With Jesus, there's no corporate ladder of discipleship. With Jesus, real discipleship isn't about the glory of our own self-importance. What serves the glory of the kingdom doesn't have to conform to our definition of success. And what glorifies the kingdom will not be hindered by our critique. We can, though, and often do miss the great things Jesus is doing on earth as it is in heaven because of the rejection that's born from our lack of self-confidence and the rejection that comes from the stumbling of our self-justification. 
True discipleship is not primarily about what we can or will get out of going where Jesus leads. It's, con- it's about continually checking our hearts and realizing what we get to give. What we get to participate in through following Jesus. To go where Jesus is headed, we have to cut off any and all obstacles that hinder us from dying to ourselves and living for Christ. Because Jesus is the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we would glorify him and share in his greatness when we rely on his grace. When we rely on his grace to raise us up so that we can work our way down to serve others. Particularly the least of these in his name. Amen. And again, it's not...